seeking the Lord with you on the Lord's day. Let me pray and ask him for his help. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We ask, Lord, that now that as it is taught, expounded on, and proclaimed, that by your spirit you would speak through this preacher, and that by your spirit, for we who have trusted in you, that you would change us even where we sit. Help us to grow, O God, in our adoration and fear of you, and therefore to live accordingly. We need your help to not be so distracted. We need your help to understand these things in any kind of meaningful way. So we pray that you would move in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is against the mind of God that his people should be a timorous people. That's a quote from Matthew Henry. He said, again, it is against the mind of God that his people should be a timorous people. That's a bold statement, which basically means that it's against God's will for his people to be a fearful people. It's against his will. God does not want his people to fear. But that's our tendency, isn't it? We tend toward fear. Consider the time that Israel was being led out of Egypt by God through Moses. He had just displayed his power in these ten amazing plagues, but now the Israelites were stuck at the Red Sea with the mighty Egyptian army in tow. They immediately regretted leaving Egypt, and they were fearful of their impending doom. This, even after all that God had displayed to them, Or think about when Jesus and his disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee and this great storm arose. They feared, even though their Lord was with them, sleeping below deck. Jesus rebuked the wind, calmed the sea, and then called out his disciples for their lack of faith. Or consider when Peter was invited by the Savior to walk with him on water, but then Peter saw the strong winds, and when he saw the strong winds, he became fearful, and Jesus asked him why he doubted. Let's be real. If the Egyptian army were bearing down on you with all of its chariots and rage, or if you were in a tiny boat in the middle of a deadly storm, or if you tried to walk on windy water, you'd probably be shaking in your sandals too. But as we look at each of these examples, we see why their fear was against God's will. God was with them. God had purposed to deliver his people out of Egypt. Jesus was almighty over the winds and sea. God was with them, and yet they feared. And isn't that like us? For all we who trust in Jesus Christ, God is with us. He's on our side. He even dwells in us. And yet, did we not wrestle with fear during the pandemic? Either with fear of the virus or with fear of government overreach? Do do we not get consumed with the fear-mongering, either that's coming from the mainstream media or about the mainstream media? Do we not often shrink back from sharing the gospel? 
from speaking the truth in love out of fear. Yes, we have a tendency to be fearful. We do. But God's will for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we would be fearless sons and daughters of God. Fearless. As we go through our text today, we're going to see that that's the aim of this passage, to exhort God's people to be fearless. And this passage is going to provide us with four reasons, four reasons that we ought to be fearless. We ought to be fearless because victory is guaranteed, because God is on our side, because God will provide, and because God will be glorified. Let's consider First, that we ought to be fearless, number one, because victory is guaranteed. Victory is guaranteed. So God has just told his people in verse 10, the last verse of our previous sermon in Isaiah, he's just told them, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then he says in verse 11, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. The verse begins with the word behold. What a great word that is. Like We should incorporate that more into our diet every day, right? Behold. It was meant to draw their attention to something significant. And here was the significant idea that they were to behold. Verse 11. All who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. To be incensed means to be provoked or to be, uh, to be angered. So who was incensed against Israel? All of Israel's enemies. The immediate context of this section of Isaiah would have been Babylon. That's the, that's the context of this prophecy. The nation which had destroyed Jerusalem 70 years prior, captured many of its people. But the scope of this verse goes beyond Babylon. It's referring to the enemies of God's people in general. In the Bible, that list is long. The Egyptians, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Midianites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Edomites, the Arameans, the Chaldeans, later the Greeks, and then the Romans. Throughout history, God's people have not had a short list of enemies. And yet the promise of this verse is that all who were incensed against them, all, would be put to shame. Now we understand the connection between defeat and shame, right? Like picture that, that sports team walking into its locker room with all of the players' heads hanging because they were just demolished out on the field. They were ashamed. So the enemies of Israel would be put to shame. And this too had happened throughout Israel's history. Egypt was put to shame. The nations in Canaan were put to shame. Assyria was put to shame. Soon, Babylon would be put to shame. And this is all because God is faithful to his people, faithful to his promises. All who were incensed against them, all would be put to shame, verse 11, and confounded. 
The Hebrew word that's translated there as confounded can also be translated as humiliated. And so if you're looking at something besides the English Standard Version, you may have something like that, humiliation, uh, which would mean that Israel's enemies will be put to shame and humiliated. Uh, the, the ESV, the one that we mainly use, is put to shame and confounded. But really, either would be true. God humiliated Israel's enemies. They were also confounded. Consider the confusion, the disarray of Egypt during the Exodus. The Israelites in that context of Egypt, those Israelites were treated as a lesser people. They were free labor to the Egyptians. And yet somehow they escaped Pharaoh. Not only did they escape Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's army was crushed under the Red Sea after the Israelites walked through the bottom of it. That's confounding. That's what God does to the enemies of his people. He confounds them. The second part of verse 11 says this. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. So we'll see in verses 11 and 12, the enemies of God are described in four ways. All who are incensed against them, those who strive against them, those who contend with them, and those who war against them. These aren't four different groups of people. It's talking about the same people. But in the repetition and in the variety, we see emphasis and nuance in these four different ways. So what does it mean for someone to strive against another? It means to struggle against them. It means to work against them. And throughout history, many have striven against God's people, worked hard against them. And verse 11 says of those who strove against Israel that they would be, quote, as nothing. They would be non-existent. God's enemies, the enemies of his people, would be so destroyed by God that they would be like they were nothing. In the immediate context, this is talking about Babylon. And in a very real way, God would make Babylon nothing. Now, it's not that all of the Babylonians would be slaughtered, but Babylon as an empire, Babylon as an independent state, would cease to exist. As the entity that captured God's people and oppressed God's people, Babylon would no longer be. And in that sense, it could also be said in verse 11, they shall perish. Babylon as an empire has been done away with. And verse 12 continues, You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. So there's our third phrase of opposition here, contend with you. The idea here is those who have put themselves in a contentious relationship with you. Israel would seek those who contended with them. Not that they would go looking for them, but they would look around. Where are those who contend with us? And they would not find them. They wouldn't find them. Their enemies would be so, verse 11, as nothing that they would be unfindable. The second part of verse 12 says, Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. As nothing. To say that Israel was at war with Babylon would probably be saying too much. Um, Judah was conquered. Judah was a captured people. And so what we see in these phrases is more of this general promise 
that's given to God's people, all who are incensed against God's people, all who strive against them, all who contend with them, and all who are against them, verse 12, shall be as nothing at all. They'd be brought down by God to be nothing. And if you're a Judahite in Babylonian captivity, this is what you need to hear. The victory was guaranteed. God promises Israel, Judah, that their enemies will be brought to nothing. And God is a God who keeps his promises. He is almighty, so he is able to keep his promises. And he is good, so he does keep his promises. And again, God had a tremendous track record of already doing this throughout Israel's history. We mentioned the Egyptians, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, and the Assyrians. All of them were as nothing when God delivered Israel from them. So not only was this a promise for the future, but it was a callback to the past for them to remember who it was that was their God. In fact, verse 10 says, remember, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Brothers and sisters, all we who believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who is the true Israel, have inherited these promises. All who are incensed against us will be put to shame and confounded. All who strive against us shall be as nothing and shall perish. Here are a few passages from Revelation that speak of God's victory over his enemies. Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Revelation 19, 19 through 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." And then finally, Revelation 20, verses 9 through 10. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, it's not our purpose this morning to expound on these texts. We'll leave that for 
Pastor Vladimir when he's back from sabbatical. But we can draw from this simply this. Jesus wins. All of those who oppose God, all of those who oppress his people will find God to be victorious over them. They shall be put to shame. They shall be confounded. They shall be as nothing and they shall perish. Now we are not sadists. We are not bloodthirsty, vengeful people. We should share the attitude that God has when he says in Ezekiel 33:11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. The goal that we should have right now for all humankind who oppose God is to reach them with the gospel praying that God would turn them from their wicked ways and to live in Christ. But there will come a time when Christ will return to judge. And in that time, when he returns to judge, we will rejoice in God's vindication of us as he delivers us and exalts us. We will rejoice in the justice of God as he righteously condemns all who warred against his son, our Savior. Now, friend, that hour is not yet. You can turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ even right now, and I beg you to do that, even in this moment. And if you do, you will be forgiven all of your sins, and you will be welcomed into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in him. For all we who already believe in him, we are guaranteed victory over his enemies. Guaranteed. In the eternal state, we'll look around looking for those who contend with us and we will not find them. They who warred against us will be nothing at all. We will no longer be the church militant. We will be the church triumphant. And the one who gives us that utter victory, the one who gives us that complete peace, is the same one who first came to die for sinners like us. He came to earth a humble servant. He rose a victorious king. And he will return to fully and finally conquer all who refuse his peace offering. Victory is guaranteed. So fear not. Fear not. What is there to fear when victory is guaranteed? If you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. You may even die in the name of Jesus Christ. But when you die, you will still live. And when Christ returns, you will be raised again to join him in triumphal procession as he arrives to make those who have warred against him as nothing at all. What is there to fear? Now, we're not naive. We know that the idea of suffering for Christ is a scary idea in the flesh. We know that true Christians can struggle with fear, and that's why we need reminders like this. That's why this is in the Bible. Truths to meditate on in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Victory is guaranteed. So we can be fearless. Fearless because victory is guaranteed. Secondly, because God is on our side. 
because God is on our side. Verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. The reason that victory was guaranteed was that Yahweh, their God, held their right hand. Now, as we've considered in recent weeks, God was their God. He wasn't just God in general. He was their God. He is the true and living God, as opposed to the false gods that the nations around them worshipped. The false gods that even Israel, sadly, was prone to want to bow down to. But Yahweh, nonetheless, was their God. And he held their, verse 13 says, right hand. He held their right hand. In a previous sermon, we pointed out that the words right hand is symbolic of power. It refers to power. And in verse 11, God says, I'm uh, I'm sorry, verse 10, God says that he would uphold them with his righteous right hand. And here in verse 13, we're seeing that God would hold their right hand. He would hold their right hand, meaning that he would give them power. He would strengthen them. Or rather, he's speaking in the present tense, he strengthens them. That's why victory was guaranteed. God would destroy Israel's enemies, and he would give Israel strength. In fact, in verse 10, it says, I will strengthen you. And in the previous chapter, in verse 29, Isaiah said, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So we're reminded once again here that God holds the right hand of his people. He gives them power. And it was Yahweh, their God, who said to them, Fear not, verse 13. I am the one who helps you. Fear not. I am the one who helps you. Listen, when the God of the universe is on your side, whom shall you fear? What shall you fear? We understand this, right? The person who is going to help you determines your level of confidence. All right, so let's say I needed to help moving, I need help moving a mattress. And Pastor Corey's son, Uriah, is the only one who volunteers. <laughs> I would be moved, but that mattress wouldn't be, <laughs> right? Now, if, if Michael Pope, if he offered to help me, then I would just let him move the mattress, <laughs> right? More seriously, if a person has cancer, the phrase, we're going to good t- take good care of you, that's going to hit different coming from a renowned oncologist as opposed to a first-year resident. Is this making sense? Your level of confidence, your level of fearlessness is directly correlated with the ability of whoever is on your side. And if the infinite God above all creation is the one who says to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you, then your fearlessness should be immeasurable. God said to the people of Israel, I am the one who helps you. And then in verse 14, he continues, Fear not, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now, why does God call them in verse 14, you worm Jacob? He's not insulting them. He's pointing out how actually weak they are. 
Just imagine, just after some rainfall, you're walking on the sidewalk, and you see a little worm on the sidewalk next to some grass. You might be grossed out by it, but you probably don't feel threatened by it. That's how weak Judah was, a.k.a. Israel, a.k.a. Jacob. They were a worm. They were a worm. And they were also few. The phrase here, you men of Israel, is understood by many commentators to have a connotation of you few men or you handful of Israel. Again, why is it that God could say to a worm, fear not? Why is it that he can say to a small group of people, fear not? It's because of the next phrase in verse 14. I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh. Once again, it was Yahweh helping this worm, helping these men. They didn't need to fear. The last part of verse 14 says this. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The people of Israel, Judah, they had a Redeemer, meaning they had a next of kin, they had a protector, they had a deliverer, they had an avenger. And their Redeemer was none other than, verse 14 says, the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. He is the, he is the being in the universe who is truly holy. There are others in the Bible who are called holy because they are set apart by him. But there is someone who is set apart by no one. He is set apart simply because he is. He exists in and of himself. His glory is in and of himself. All of creation exists. All of history has been planned in and of himself. And there is none like him. He is the Holy One. He is the Holy One. And He was theirs. He was their Holy One. God gave Himself to them. And this God who was faithful to them was their Redeemer. Therefore, they didn't need to fear. God continues in verse 15. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. A threshing sledge or a threshing sled was a farm tool that had sharp teeth and was dragged over the land to smooth the soil, forcibly crushing the soil or the, the ground and breaking anything that needed to be broken down for farming. Okay? It was also used over stalks of wheat, stalks of barley, to cut them into small pieces. God made Israel, verse 15, a threshing sledge. But they weren't just any old threshing sledge lying around. They were, verse 15, new, sharp, having teeth. They weren't some old, ineffective, used threshing sledge. They were new and sharp. They had teeth which probably meant that the blades were serrated, which would make it more of an effective tool. But they weren't merely going to till soil. God says this in verse 15, you shall thresh the mountains and crush them. The mountains. The idea behind mountains here is, is probably it's a metaphor for formidable enemies or kings. 
It wasn't just that God would have victory over these mountains, but Israel themselves would have victory over them. God's people would thresh the mountains and crush them. Similarly, verse 15 says, And you shall make the hills like chaff. The word hills, you know, mountains, hills, may be referring to less great enemies, but all of God's enemies, great and small, would be crushed. All of them would be made like chaff. Chaff is that unusable part of the wheat that's separated from the wheat and blown away. Israel would make the hills like chaff. Verse 16 goes on to say, You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Israel would winnow the mountains and the hills. And what that looks like is throwing the threshed grain up into the air with a shovel and then the wind would drive the chaff away. Verse 16 says, And the tempest shall scatter them. That's how scattered Israel's enemies would be. It would just be a gentle breeze that would take them away. It would be a storm, a tempest, a whirlwind. That's how utter Israel's victory over their enemies would be. Now, this is interesting because it didn't really look this way from Israel's perspective. It wasn't like the Israelites, the Judahites, mounted an armed rebellion against Babylon, and it was glorious. No, God raised King Cyrus of Persia to come in and basically take Babylon with little to no resistance. But... God so aligns himself with his people that his victory over their enemies is their victory. It's as if they were the ones who did it, even though it was completely a gracious work of God. Keep that in mind for a moment. A completely a gracious work of God. The middle of verse 16 continues, And you shall rejoice in the Lord. This is the proper response to Israel's victory over its enemies, They were to rejoice in Yahweh who delivered them. They weren't to rejoice in their own strength. They weren't to rejoice in their own abilities, their own pride, nor their own self-worth. They were to rejoice in God. Verse 16 finishes, In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. It was in Him that they should glory. It was in Him that they should boast. It was in Him that they should exalt All credit belongs to him. All glory belongs to him. They shouldn't find themselves boasting in themselves after this deliverance. 2 Corinthians 10.17 likewise says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let all of our boasting be in him. To God be the glory. God was reminding Israel that they could be fearless because he was on their side. And the same is true for us, brethren. The same God is our God, and he helps us. Hebrews 13.6 says this, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God is the one who strengthens us. He is the one who helps us. He even gave us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us and be with us always. 
And not only is God the Father our Redeemer, but He has sent us His only Son to be our Redeemer. Jesus is the Holy One of God, whom the Father sent to redeem and deliver His people. And He will likewise give us victory over our enemies. For example, 1 Corinthians 15.57 says of the last enemy, death, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And over and over again in the book of Revelation, a Christian is described as the one who conquers. He will make of us a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. We shall thresh the mountains and crush them. We shall make the hills like chaff. We shall winnow them, and the wind and tempest shall scatter them. And we will rejoice in the Lord. Revelation 19.1 says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. We will glory in Him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is on your side. Whom shall you fear? What should you be afraid of? It is God who helps you. It is God. We can be fearless because victory is guaranteed, because God is on our side, and thirdly, because God will provide. Because God will provide. Look at verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. In the previous verses, we just saw what God was going to do against God's enemies. And here he turns his attention to the desperate. He's talking about poor and needy people needing water. And this is more of a metaphor. Imagine being poor and needy. Imagine seeking water and finding no water. We don't really understand the desperation of that very much because in our context, if you're desperate for water, you'll use those water fountains that are out in the lobby, right? You, you would maybe prefer not to use those fountains, but if you were desperate, you knew that they were available to you. But in the context of these ancient people, if you couldn't find water, that's a matter of life and death. That's a state of emergency. Not only would the lack of water be a problem for drinking, but it would also be a problem for eating because water is needed for crops to grow. But when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, verse 17, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, Yahweh, will answer them. This brings a question to mind. Why would God wait until someone couldn't find water? Why would God wait until his tongue was parched with thirst before he would answer them? That's a very good question. There are two reasons that we can draw from the Old Testament about why God would choose to wait until someone was desperate before giving them what they need. One, to test his people. To test his people. You may wonder in Exodus why it is that God would allow them to go hungry or thirsty. It was to test his people. We saw that God allowed the people to get thirsty in the wilderness, and we saw them fail that test. They grumbled against God despite what he just did for them. 
That's one reason that God withheld water for times. And the second was to discipline his people, to discipline them. They're very closely related. But in 1 Kings, King Ahab led the people into worshiping Baal and Asherah, false gods. And to discipline King Ahab and the people, God sent them a drought for three years. Droughts and famines had a very, uh, they, were very they were very skilled in drawing people back to God in humility, droughts and famines. But when people cried out to the Lord in such times, when they cried out in humility and desperation, the Lord would answer them. The Lord would provide the water they needed. Why? Because he was their God. He says in verse 17, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. God always provides, but he provides especially when his people are in need. He does not forsake his people because of who he is. He doesn't forsake his people because of who he is. God is merciful and abounding in steadfast love. Love is at the core of who he is. God is love. He is gracious and compassionate. He's faithful to his promises. He's also all-knowing, everywhere present, and all-powerful. And because of these things and so much more, God does not forsake the people with whom he has covenanted, even when they themselves have broken the covenant. That's who God is. God does not forsake his people, thanks be to God. In verse 18, notice we read this. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. God says that he is going to open rivers on the bare heights. Bare heights were mountains or hills that were barren and naked, which means that they didn't have any trees. They didn't have any vegetation. What that means is they had no water. They had no water. You might consider, uh, just for illustration, Lone Mountain. That's, that's a bare height. Yeah, you'll see some um, desert plants there. But generally, you wouldn't go there looking for water, right? It's bare. It's rocky. You're not going to find a stream of water on Lone Mountain. So for God to open rivers on the bare heights, what this is saying is that he is going to do the impossible to provide for his people. Similarly, finding fountains in the midst of valleys in this verse. That's highly unlikely. There's a valley that's south of the Dead Sea near Israel that's called the Valley of Salt. Very hot, very dry. The water that is available there is scarce, and it's really not drinkable. It's salty. It's coming mainly from the Dead Sea. So imagine in that context, fountains opening in the midst of that valley to give water to the poor and needy. He also says in verse 18 that he would make the wilderness a pool of water. Same idea, just said in another way. The wilderness, where the place where Israel wandered for 40 years because of their grumbling, was a dry and barren place. God says he would make the wilderness a pool of water. Similarly, in verse 18, he would make the dry land springs of water. What's the opposite of dry land? Springs of water. Such is the nature of God's provision for his people. He would do the impossible for them. Then in verse 19, it says this. 
God says this, I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. Seven types of trees or bushes are listed in this verse, perhaps expressing the perfection and completeness of God's provision. According to one source, the cedar is a tall and majestic tree that symbolizes strength and glory. The acacia is a thorny tree that produces valuable wood and gum. The myrtle is a fragrant and evergreen shrub that represents beauty and joy. The olive is a fruitful, long-lived tree that signifies peace and prosperity. The cypress is a durable and aromatic tree that denotes stability and comfort. The plain is a large and spreading tree that implies shade and protection. And the pine is a resinous and evergreen tree that conveys endurance and hope. Now, do all of these trees carry these symbolic connotations? I don't know. I don't know. We'll just have to ask someone when we get to heaven, right? But certainly, the collection of these trees stands in contrast to the barren wilderness. God was going to make a luscious garden out of the wilderness, something only God can do. God would provide for his people in the greatest moment of their desperation. Now, this hasn't found a literal fulfillment. No rivers have been opened in bare heights, for example, and the wilderness that's described in the Bible, if you go visit it, is still very much dry and rocky today. But as a metaphor, God accomplished all of these things for his people. They were in exile as a result of their sin. They were spiritually parched. They were beleaguered. But God would deliver them from their exile and meet their every need. He would restore them in Jerusalem, including having the temple and the, and the walls of the city rebuilt. Check out Ezra and Nehemiah for that. And that rebuilding, you'll read in those books, was supported and funded by kings Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes of Persia. Persia would pay for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Who could do that? Only God could do that. And so God provided for and he restored his people. But was this pointing to something greater? Can you think of a time in the New Testament when God provided the poor and needy water where there was none? Consider how in John 4, 1 through 42, Jesus met a Samaritan woman at the well and offered her living water that would quench her thirst forever. Or when in John 7, 37 through 39, Jesus invites anyone who is thirsty to come to him and drink, promising them streams of living water that would flow from within them. Or when in Revelation 7, 16 through 17, an angel says of the great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation that they will never be hungry or thirst again and that the lamb would be their shepherd who would guide them to springs of living water. Or in Revelation 21, 1 through 6, 
when John sees the new heaven and the new earth, God says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Brothers and sisters, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, our God Yahweh will answer them. Our God will not forsake them. He gives living water to all who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And just as God would do the impossible in order to save his people from Babylonian captivity, so God has done the impossible for us. It was not possible for us to get right with God. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. There is none good. No one seeks for God. So God did for us the impossible. He, if you will, opened rivers on the bare heights by giving his only son for us. Jesus lived the perfect life that was not possible for us to live. He took on the punishment that we could not bear. And by faith in him, he gave us eternal life that we could not have. God has opened rivers on the bare heights for us. These are things upon which angels long to look. Furthermore, part of what God is doing He's restoring cursed creation. He's putting trees in the wilderness, if you will. Revelation 22, 1 through 3 says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. You know what else had a river flowing through it? You know what else had the tree of life in the midst of it? You know from where all creation was cursed? The Garden of Eden. And in the end, God will restore the garden. He will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. He will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. God is going to redeem and restore everything, and along with everyone who he has set aside in Christ, namely all we who believe in him. God has provided and he will provide. Not only has he provided for us the Savior, but he has also provided for us the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom God is going, through whom God is going to bring us all the way back to the garden. And since God will provide, whom or what shall we fear? The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. We can be fearless because victory is guaranteed, because God is on our side, because God will provide, and number four, much more quickly, because God will be glorified. Because God will be glorified. Verse 20 reveals the purpose for us of God's supernaturally providing water to the needy and trees to the wilderness. Verse 20, that they may see and know 
may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Who is they that would see and know? They are whoever witnesses God's supernatural work of deliverance. Even we today, who have read about how God used Persia to deliver Judah, allow them to go back to their homeland and equip them to rebuild, we have seen and known thousands of years later. Those who have witnessed God's amazing work to deliver his people from Babylon, we have seen that the hand of Yahweh has done this. There is no other explanation. It could only otherwise be just a long series of coincidences that God's people were taken into exile, just as Isaiah prophesied, and that 70 years later, they would somehow be taken out of exile, just as Isaiah and others prophesied. And remember, Isaiah even prophesied the name of Cyrus, the king, 150 years before it happened, to be the one that God would use. Yes, many people from that time, many more people throughout history, they have seen that God has done this. Not only do they see, verse 20, but they see and know. See and know. Seeing and knowing are tied together in the scriptures. In Exodus 14, God meant for Egypt and Israel to witness the events so that they may see and know God's power and glory and that other nations who would hear about these eyewitness events would also know God's power and glory. God did his mighty work that the people would see and know that he was the one who had did it by his hand. Not only would they see and know, but they'd also consider, verse 20, they'd consider. The idea behind that word is that they would ponder it. They'd ponder it. It's not just about seeing and knowing that God did it, but weighing what are the implications of that. When you consider what God did, what should you conclude? You should conclude that Yahweh is the almighty God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. You'll conclude that he can do whatever he wants and that he acts mightily on behalf of his people. You'll conclude that your idols are nothing and that the only God who is worthy of praise is the God of the Bible. Not only would they see, know, and consider, but they would also, verse 20 says, understand together. It wouldn't just be an individual knowledge. It would be a corporate knowledge. Remember that even Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, was made aware that it was Yahweh who did this. And implied in that is that Cyrus's people would know that as well, together with King Darius and King Artaxerxes after him. But it would be even more than just Persia. It would be the entire united empire that Cyrus had gathered. Basically, all of the known world would have known that Yahweh was the one who did this, according to the decree of their king of kings, Cyrus. They understood it together. Even if they didn't bow their knee to Israel's God, they understood it together. And God was glorified and praised. Listen to what Cyrus proclaimed throughout his entire empire and put it in writing according to Ezra 1-2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. 
Cyrus was stirred up to glorify God and praise him before his entire kingdom. God did what he did that the people may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Now why, you ask, should this comfort us? In Isaiah 48, 11, we're going to see God saying this. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God does all things for his glory. Why should the fact that God does all things for his glory comfort us and make us fearless? The reason, first of all, that it should not offend us that God does all things for his glory, is that whatever God does is good. Everything that God does for his glory is good. And every good thing that God does glorifies him. Therefore, for God not to do something for his own glory would be to do something bad, which God cannot do. Since God can only do good, then he can only do what glorifies him. And for we who have eyes to see, whatever God does to glorify himself is for our benefit and for our delight. So God does all things for his glory. And one thing that he's going to do for his glory is bring you safely home. 2 Timothy 4.18 says this, And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so here's the, here's the, the logical syllogism. Here's the argument. Premise one, God does all things for his glory. Premise two, God bringing us all the way home is going to glorify him. Conclusion, he's going to bring us safely home. That's why the realization that God will be glorified by the completion of his redemptive plan should comfort us. God will not fail to be glorified. Never has, never will. Therefore, he will not fail to bring us home. And therefore, we can be fearless. We can be fearless because victory is guaranteed. Because God is on our side. Because he will provide and because he will be glorified. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. All who believe in Jesus Christ are made right with God and therefore have this guaranteed victory. They have God on their side. They have the promise of his provision, the guarantee of his glorification. All who reject Jesus Christ and persist in doing so until death, they're going to be part of the group that will be crushed made like chaff, winnowed, and carried away. But perhaps for you, today is the day of salvation. Trust in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, fear is a real challenge for Christians on earth. We still have our flesh, which does not want to believe in God. We echo the man's plea, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And as we pray that, may we fix our eyes on these realities that we've covered today. 
They are all reminders from God to us, designed to help us to be fearless in our earthly mission. Trust in God and do not fear. And encourage one another with these things. Is your brother or sister in Christ fearful? Remind them that their victory is guaranteed. Remind them that God is on their side. Remind them that God will provide. And remind them that God will be glorified. Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. May we be fearless, sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Father, we all agree to this in our minds, and we need your help to make it apply to our weak emotions, O oh God. Help us every day to be fearless for you, to live for you without any timidity, but with trust in you, O oh God, that we would be like people before us who would go to the cross singing hymns or to go to be fed to lions and other wild animals in the Colosseum, to be willing to go to another island to share the gospel only to be speared to death. Lord, help us to be fearless. Help us to trust in you in all of these things. By the name of, in the name of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. Let's stand and sing together in response.